HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. Whole Foods Market is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and Wellness in the Schools. Serving over 30,000 children in New York's public schools, Wellness in the Schools offers healthy eating education for students with a focus on cooking, tasting, and feeling whole ingredients. Learn more about community giving at Whole Foods Market by visiting www.wholefoodsmarket.com backslash values. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today, hoping to save the food trucks, with David Weber, president of the New York City Food Truck Association. Hi. It's great to be here. I'm really excited. Excited, and at the same time, um, there is a pressing issue. Yeah. Uh, What recently happened in Midtown? Um, Well... What happened is, uh, in February this year, a suit was brought against the city uh, pertaining to a law that's been on the books since 1965 uh, about where uh, food trucks are allowed to vend. Uh, and there's this, this law that's been on the books since 1965, uh, which basically states you can't vend merchandise from metered parking. And uh, actually, can I read it verbatim? Because yeah, yeah. Some, it's, some, it's, some of the language is so antiquarian as as the law seems to be um, that no vendor, hawker or huckster, shall park a vehicle at a metered parking space to offer merchandise for sale from the vehicle. And this is effectively threatening the the food truck 
street yeah. presence in Midtown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this this law's been on the books for a while, and we've been aware of it for a while, and we've always maintained the position that food isn't merchandise. I think that merchandise is commonly understood to be a commodity that's bought and sold, and we think that there's something about street food uh, when you get uh, a taco made exactly the way you want it, with extra onions yeah. and a little hot sauce, that definitely elevates it from the point of being a commodity. Yeah, so it, customizing. Almost. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's the customization, and it's also, you know, food served hot uh, right to you. Uh, it's, it's no longer something that can be bought and sold. Yeah. It's something to be consumed. Uh, you can't turn to the person behind you in line <laughs> and resell your, your taco. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, in our mind, uh, food never has been merchandise. Um, but obviously, the state Supreme Court disagreed. Um, and I think that that was sort of the root of a lot of these problems. Now that it, the interpretation of the law is that food is merchandise, um, the NYPD, uh, you know, it's it's their responsibility. That's what they do is they enforce laws. Um, so, you know, the, now they're in this awkward position of enforcing this law that no one really, yeah. I think, ever anticipated to be enforced this way. Well, do they come up to the trucks and say, I'd like one taco and you have to move? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, our experience, uh, by and large, has been that the NYPD has been pretty patient and judicious in asking trucks to move. They haven't been giving citations. They haven't been towing the trucks. Uh, they've just been coming by and, and, and really educating people, being like, you know, there was this court case and this is what's going on, yeah. so you, you have to move. You have to find a new place to vend. Um, but that's pretty scary. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the, these food trucks, their business models are built around uh, a really busy lunch rush. Uh, that a central business district like Midtown or the Wall Street area uh, affords. And so it's, it's, it's a big change. It's a big shift. Uh, and it, it, it's a lot to, to cope with all at once. And this isn't just directly affecting Midtown. This is, like you said, Wall Street. This is any metered spot in all five boroughs. Absolutely. And, you know, I haven't been able to pin down a, a statistic uh, exactly uh, spelling this out, but I, I'm pretty sure that in 1965, only a very small portion of the city was metered. Yeah. Whereas today, just about all of the city is metered. So um, it is a widespread problem for food trucks uh, because we need to be resourceful and find uh, new places to vend, new ways to vend, and new ways to stay relevant uh, given this constraint. Yeah, and where have all the food trucks gone? It sounds um, like a Bob Dylan song. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's a sad thing. Yeah. Um, you know, people are, are finding different, different ways to cope. Um, you know, as I, I just mentioned, so much of the city is metered that a lot of times there's, there's not many places to be other than metered yeah, parking. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what's happening is it's settling down to a new equilibrium. So, so places where uh, food trucks were sort of borderline, where they, they had a lot of fans, but maybe there were um, uh, street-level businesses that weren't so fond of them. Uh, now that there's the legal uh, opportunity to move these trucks, those trucks are being moved. But then there's other neighborhoods where the trucks are quite welcome, mm-hmm. um, where nothing is happening. It's because, you know, there's, there's plenty of laws on the books that, that only are enforced you know, when it becomes necessary to enforce them. You know, if you think about jaywalking, obviously illegal. Yeah. Um, but in New York day, in New York city happens millions of times a day. Um, but under special circumstances, you definitely would want that enforced. So, yeah, I remember um, when Giuliani, uh, put up the fencing, um, I forget where that was and disallowing jaywalking, you had to jump over the fence and it was actually enforced. My yeah. friends actually got tickets. 
Um, so, you know, hopefully, you know, we won't be getting tickets for this. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can, we can settle down to this new equilibrium where it ends up working for everyone. Um, and, you know, one of the long-term goals that we have is really to work with the city to try and find a better way for trucks to be a part of the streetscape in New York City. Uh, we think that being able to vend from meter parking is pretty important to the industry as a whole. Uh, but we do understand that maybe some compromises are in order. There's definitely been some circumstances where too many food trucks are showing up at one spot and it's kind of crowding out the pedestrian traffic or yeah. uh, making it really hard for local businesses that are paying rent uh, to get deliveries. Um, so, you know, th- there is some some push and pull and there's definitely been a big change in the way street vending has been happening in the city uh, starting around 2007. I think that Kim is one of the, you know, yeah. the, the formative members in terms of like setting this new precedent for the branded new wave sort of differentiated food on the streets. Yeah. And by Kim, you mean Kim Ema of yeah. Tree Truck, who we're going to have Colin on the second half of this show. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. You mentioned the brick and mortar, mm-hmm. you know, like the street level non truck businesses. Has there been a big pushback from them? Um, well, I think that there's constant tension um, between between brick and mortar street level businesses and uh, food food trucks or street vendors of any kind. Um, I think that the members of the food truck association are are in a unique position to to be sensitive to that. Uh, in that, more than half of our members uh, currently have brick and mortar restaurants yeah. or are in the process of opening them. How many members do you have? We have 26 members now. Yeah. Uh, and we have, I think, 10 members that currently have restaurants that they operate and three in the process of opening them. Uh, Mexicu is in working on opening yeah. a restaurant, the Kimchi Taco Truck, and Kim is also working on yeah. building a brick-and-mortar restaurant, which we're super excited about. Um, you know, And I think that that's one of the really interesting things about food trucks uh, in terms of their use as an incubator to really hone a concept, get it right, and then move on. Uh, so we see ourselves as part of the larger context of, you know, the the different vectors in which the hospitality industry has to connect with customers. Um, so we're hoping that, you know, with time, uh, brick and mortars will see food trucks more as an opportunity for themselves to expand rather than just direct competition. Yeah. Well, in 2005, you helped found Rickshaw Dumpling. Yes. The the mortar, brick and mortar Absolutely. location. Yeah. So, you know, within, within the members of our association about, you know, it's a split about 50-50 between people that started with trucks and then expanded to restaurants. And then there's a couple restaurants that uh, moved into food trucks after having a brick and mortar restaurant. Uh, and that's definitely the route that, that Rickshaw went. Yeah. And one of the reasons we got into food trucks uh, way back then is just to learn more about the concept. Uh, we wanted to understand better uh, who our customers were and how our operations were working. Uh, we were struggling with a couple things in the restaurant. And it was just it's very expensive to refit your restaurant to 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 try something out, yeah. you know? Um, so we're like, well, you know, it was kind of like a thought experiment at the beginning. It's like, well, can this work in a 10 by six foot space? And what sort of throughput could we do? And where are customers most excited about dumplings? And so that's why we built the first truck to really learn more about rickshaw. And it's really paid off in spades. Uh, the first time we opened a restaurant, uh, we were up all night. We're like, yeah. Will people come? Will they not come? Um, but we just recently opened a store at 45th and Lex in Midtown. And I didn't lose a wink of sleep. I knew it was going to be a home run. And when it opened, sure enough, there were lines around uh, the door, lines out the door. Um, because 
we'd been there. We knew those customers already. Yeah. Oh, so you had a truck there prior. Yes, yeah, so we had a truck in that neighborhood. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a really <coughs> valuable asset to any company to, to be able to look across the city at, uh, you know, sort of a, a spreadsheet, which is what we have of all the locations we've been at over time and be like, you know, this is the demand at these different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So it, it really takes a lot of the risk out of the real estate component of opening a brick and mortar restaurant um, to 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 know that for sure there's customers there rather than just counting foot traffic and sort of guessing who might come. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to note is that rickshaw means man-powered vehicle. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's a big difference in how people experience food trucks versus brick and mortar restaurants, even if they're, you know, both rickshaw dumpling? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, there's something about the intimacy of um, being able to see the entire operation at once. You know, when you look into uh, the window of a food truck, you basically see the entire world of uh, the preparation of your food. Um, So you can see it from start to finish uh, through that window, and you more likely than not are going to be able to meet uh, the entrepreneur that that started that concept. So, you know, there's there's a lot of intimacy, and it's very accessible in a way that sometimes a restaurant isn't because so much might be hidden in the basement or in the back room. Uh, One of the things we deliberately try to do with the rickshaw concept is... uh, have a lot of glass so that the preparation was very transparent. Uh, sometimes uh, Asian food gets a bad rap, uh, especially <laughs> Chinese. Yeah. Um, so we, we really wanted it transparent and accessible so that people could see the cleanliness and the care that was going into the food. Uh, but it's all that much more apparent on a food truck because there's there's no place to hide on yeah, a food uh, truck. You know, there's 60 square feet and it's all right there through the window. Yeah, up until the last few years, I, I kind of visualized all trucks as these old beaters that were, you know, terrible on the outside and also possibly terribly aesthetic uh, you know on the on the inside so uh, that translucency that transparency uh, yeah, shows a lot absolutely and i think that you know the care and concern that this this new wave i mean not there's been amazing food trucks in new york city amazing street carts in new york city for a long time but i think that as uh, more professional operators get into this uh and, and really focus on the integrity of the food and the the quality of the preparation uh it really draws in a lot more customers and uh you know i think that one one thing uh that I've heard said before, which I really think is true, is a lot of restaurants have customers, but food trucks have followers. Like, yeah. Like, people feel much more participatory in the business, and they can see, you know, that they have an, an impact on the success or the failure oh, yeah. of a restaurant. And you, know, and you don't just mean, you just you don't mean just the Twitter followers to find a location. Like, um, you know, it's an integral part. It's, it's an honest part. I mean, it... There's such a customer base that cares about yeah, the truck. The the reactions I see on the street, um, you know, wandering around just the other day, uh, I was down uh, near Hudson and Houston, and I was walking across Varick, and um, a, a group of three girls were walking past me, and all of a sudden one of them screams, it's the waffles truck, you know, <laughs> and she ran across the yeah. street, like, you know, that's an amazing reaction to get out of someone. Um, and one of the other things that's really amazing is like people are inviting food trucks to their weddings, their bar mitzvahs. Yeah. You know, like it's such a personal uh, milestone in your life. And to have something like, uh, you know, the rickshaw dumpling truck at your wedding is we're always just so flattered whenever anyone yeah. calls and they're like, oh, we want to book your dumpling truck for our wedding. And we're like, yes, you that, know, that, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that's something to keep in mind. We're going to take a quick break. Come back with Kim in. Kim Ima of the Treats Truck. Um, we've had David Weber of the New York City Food Truck Association. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Here with David Weber, president of the New York City Food Trucks Association. Um, we were just talking about, you know, one, this association has 26 members. You have a lobbyist. Mm-hmm. One, what does a lobbyist do? And what kind of rights do the trucks have right now? Um, well, our, one of the primary things that we're doing is uh, advocacy. And so we're working on behalf of the food trucks in New York City, all the food trucks. Um, but, you know, we have a select mem- membership um, that, that are contributing towards this goal of really trying to improve the regulation of this industry so that it can grow and thrive in the future. I think that there's a lot of things that food trucks offer to the city. Uh, they really activate public space. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm always reminded of is, uh, in Times Square, it was uh, a cart vendor that actually spotted that bomb, you know, the the, the car yeah. bomb there. Despite all the technology and all the cameras, uh, it was someone that's on the street that knows the street, that's used to being on that street, that noticed that was something was out of the ordinary. So I think that activating public space is really important and having those eyes on the street, that Jane Jacobs idea of, you know, like uh, people that care on the street every day is really important for maintaining safe, active streets in the long term. Um, these these food trucks uh, that are professionally run are you know the real businesses, and one of the commitments that all of our members make is to pay sales tax. So there's some real money being made for the city uh, yeah. in 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 the form of sales tax and payroll tax, uh, and they're also employers. You know we're we're growing industry. Uh, you can see every day there's a new food truck. It seems yeah. <laughs> these days this spring this summer, um, and and we're growing and uh, it, it's a a vibrant, interesting part of 
uh, New York City. And I think that that leads to my third point, which is tourism. You know, these these food trucks are winning all sorts of accolades. Uh, a lot of them are local through the Street Vendor Project's Vendi Awards. Um, but people are also winning national awards and quick service magazine, you know, the 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 America's dream team of top 10 trucks. We got two of them yeah. uh, from New York City. Which and, ones? Um, you know, off the top of my head, I, I'm not sure. I think it was uh, Kelvin Slush in the rickshaw dumpling truck. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, also national magazines noting, uh, you know, the top 10 street foods in the world. Uh, one of them is, you know, a New York City food truck. And I think that that sort of stuff really Which one was speaks that? to... Um, <laughs> I wish you on, this spot with all this. on these things, but it, it yeah. was the No, it's just I'm making truck. myself hungry. Yeah. Uh, it's the rickshaw dumpling truck, and I happen to know that just because of uh, it's rickshaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that you know these these sorts of things make make New York City a destination, and one of the things that I would love to see New York City do is vie for uh, the title of being like the the street food capital of the country yeah and i think right now there's a there's a lot of competition coming from la you know like they have great weather um they have a regulatory regime that's like a little bit uh, more generous um it, but new york city has a lot of advantages we have really dense urban areas uh unparalleled urban density we have extremely discriminating public and we have all sorts of uh, amazing culinary talent. We have amazing restaurateurs here. And to a large part, these people aren't in the game right now because so much of the regulation is so murky and yeah. uncertain and things change all the time, like this no, no vending for meter parking law um, that, that make it too risky sometimes for, for these, these, these people to, to join in to, to this industry. Yeah. So, you know, the, the primary thing that we do with, with the lobbyists is, you know, to get it to, to make a tour, uh, meet different government officials and sort of educate them about what's going on on the street and what our challenges are and how they can help uh, this industry really grow. Excellent. Speaking of joining in, we have Kim Ema of the Treats Trek on the line. Hi, Kim. Hi, guys. Hi, Kim. <laughs> Thank- Hi, David. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you're not talking to us while driving anymore. No, no, no. Okay. no I'm sorry. I was running a, a minute late there with the, with the truck. No, I, I, am, I am safely parked at the moment. Fantastic. Adam Eater. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> a subject we won't, we won't breach right now. But uh, Kimima is the founder, owner, operator, um, one-woman show. Well, has employees, but the the person behind Treats Truck, uh, a.k.a. Sugar. Uh, when did you start your business? Uh, the truck, the first day the truck was on the street was uh, June 9th, 2007. Uh, but it took about almost a year before before that getting everything set up. So I was working on it, and I had my truck, but getting it all fixed up and getting all the paperwork together took about a year. And then June of 2007, I was on the street. Yeah, see, that's something I kind of want to highlight. Everyone thinks that trucks are so, uh, uh, you know, that they're easy to put there on the street but it took you a year and there is overhead um i mean it costs some money it costs labor to be able to put those products on the shelves um how much of an initial investment did it take to get sugar on the street well i mean it depends on on what you serve and how you do it but for me i mean i I rent a commercial kitchen yeah so i can so 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 you know uh, i rent a commercial kitchen and um, I have uh, my truck parts in a food depot, which you have to do. Your truck has to be an official commissary or depot. And I have uh, staff. Um, I have a bookkeeper. I have a lot, a lot of expenses. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, it does look very free and easy. Like, oh, you just have a truck and you drive around. And I mean, yes, it is fun having a truck, but there is a lot you just don't see when you see the truck on the street. Yeah, and you know, 
one right now i'm craving one of your oatmeal jammies mm-hmm. you you see those you know dollar cookies here you know two dollar cookies there um they add up but they don't add up fast enough sometimes to be able to pay for all these things and then losing one of your most viable sources of income um what have you been doing in the past couple of weeks to try to recover um well to be honest it, it, i it took me by surprise also because I, i've had i mean i don't out new spots all the time. It took months to build my spots, and I've been doing it for four years. So I go. To, I have a routine of where I would go each day, two spots a day. So two weeks ago, all of a sudden, everything changed, and so I'm each day sometimes trying to just find some place to park. Sometimes, there have been days I've circled for three hours, and there are days when you know I've scouted and I've been able to park. Um, but it takes months to really build up a customer base and, and to build up a spot and to become a part of a community. So the past two weeks have been hard, um, and um, I've, I've been hemorrhaging money, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because also I need to be in high-density areas because I'm not selling a full meal. So, yeah. you know, you can come and spend $1 or $2.50 or maybe $5, but I need to see a lot of, a, a lot of people at the truck to make what I need to make to, to to make it a worthwhile day. Yeah, have you seen a lot of your midtown lunchers come and find you wherever you are? Are you, you know, like no, a destination? No. Yeah. A lot of emails of support. Yeah. But even when I've had offices move, like when I was at 38th and 5th, and one of my favorite offices, tons of people came from the office. They moved to the 50s. Yeah. And they were that wasn't even that was still within midtown. Most of them said it's just going to be impossible to come. Because if you're not really close to their office, they're just not going to make it. So I've had a lot of emails from Midtowners. I haven't seen a lot of them. Some some of them are now coming to me after work from, you know, wherever neighborhood where they live, you know, the the, the residents. But um, most of my customers I'm not seeing. So... um, so yeah, I feel I you know I, for four years I built up a customer base and now I'm pretty much cut off from them. Yeah, um, it's like cutting off a part of your family. They've been such a part of your lives for these past years. And um, Kim has an amazing cookbook coming out by Harper Collins this summer. And I remember you saying a big part of that book was photographing uh, your customers and interviewing your customers. That you know they, they're I, such yeah. a big part of your business. They are. They're actually the books dedicated to them because. They are the reason I'm here. They're such a pleasure, and they what they're what make it work for me. And 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 I I love my regulars. So um, yeah, the book is definitely it's a cookbook, but it has a lot of color of you know life on the street with the treats truck. Yeah, including cookies named after customers. Yeah, <laughs> who who is a cookie named after them, and how did they uh, do well, that? A man, <laughs> well, there's a man who a regular who would always asks for coconut anything like suggestions for coconut but especially chocolate chip cookies with coconut in it yeah for months and months and he'd say you got it yet you got it yet and i'd smile and say not yet not <laughs> yet and then one day i surprised him and i'd made the coconut chocolate chip cookie and i said to him what's your name he said mitch i said okay it's the coconut mitch <laughs> so it doesn't have any explanation when i put it on the menu it just says coconut mitch <laughs> yeah excellent where's coconut mitch usually buy his cookie from 45th street <laughs> yeah so I haven't seen Coconut Mitch. <laughs> yeah. Coconut Mitch, get, get your ass down, see Kim wherever it is. But at the same time, do you not see what's going on here? And I'm not saying this to, you know, David or Kim, but like there were inherent businesses that were part of people's lives being stripped away from them. It's, it's a little more than just this 1965 regulation coming to light. So 
people have to get out there and support this this amazing creative burgeoning community that wasn't just sitting there being hawkers and hucksters, um, as they said. Yeah. And can I add something? Yeah. There are a lot of people who come to New York, and they email me, and they'll say, even the past couple of weeks, we're coming from Austin, Texas. We're coming from Seattle. We're coming from different places, Belgium. And they put us on their list, whether it's a specific truck or if it's just trucks in general, as something they want to do when they come to New York. And I love that. I think it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things that we were speaking to before you came on, Kim, is that the trucks really add to the the vibrancy of New York City, and I think that they're a really important component to stimulating tourism. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of amazing and interesting things to to New York City, um, but I think that food trucks really uh, energize the streets, and they they add to the part of the mystique of what makes New York so fun and interesting. No, agreed. And I, I think the biggest thing that should come out of this is New York, Midtown, you know, all the boroughs should realize that uh, as impermanent as they seem, food trucks should be a permanent fixture of New York and figure out a way to, you know, reword um, this seemingly antiquarian law uh, to accommodate what has been uh, something that has brought people to New York, brought smiles to people's faces, brought uh, cookie names to people's houses. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so th- this is one of the things that we're working towards, uh, and we really appreciate any support uh, from from your listeners, uh, from New Yorkers in general. Um, we're we're putting up a support page on our website uh, that's going to have a couple things that people can do, in st- including signing a petition that basically, uh, or signing a statement of support for New York City food trucks. Uh, and, and what's your website? Uh, the website is www.nycfoodtrucks with an s plural dot org. Yeah. Um, so signing a statement of support for food trucks and keeping them part of the streetscape in New York City. Um, and also, you know, some other ways that they can contribute and uh, maybe connect with people in charge uh, to sort of educate them about uh, what, what New Yorkers are feeling about this issue. Yeah. And if you've never visited the treats truck, go stop by, see Kim, and you could have your brownie of choice, be it a corner, oh. <laughs> an edge, or a middle. Um, and I'm going to make a shout out for the oatmeal chocolate chip cookie. Yes. Uh, just delicious. <laughs> it's like the right touch of cinnamon in there. It's, it's, yeah. it's divine. I, I can't get enough yeah. of those. But all 26 oh, members you. of the New York City Food Truck Association, uh, those that aren't even members of the New York City Food Truck Association, you know, this isn't just an inclusive group of people that have felt, uh, you know, their arms and legs cut off. Yeah, it's, it's really affecting everyone. Uh, it, it's, it's a really difficult challenge and we're we're working on behalf of all all street vendors um and in particular food truck vendors to try and improve improve the laws and the regulations in new york new york city to to let this industry thrive excellent thank you kim so much for being on oh thank you very much thank you for having me on yeah and i will find you no matter where you're parked <laughs> oh, thank you. Awesome. David, thank, thank you. you again. New York, nycfoodtrucks.org. Check it out. Sign up. Coming petition. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you here next Tuesday at 3. Shout out to Whole Foods, Jack and Rich. See you later. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. 
You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Bushwick Block Party. Block Party. It's a party in the street. Free pizza by Roberta. Death Killer Death Wrestling. Featuring the legendary Mad Dog Tosto. Photo booth by Ryan Slack. Waterworld. Closed by Chimera Dactyl. Mary Meyer. Warren Bogart. Death Killer Asphalt Resistant Jeans. All types of food for your face. Sweet Soda by PA. Roberta's Bake Sale. Heritage Food. Orangini Eating Contest by the Orangini Brothers. Live music by Alex Trujan. Florida. Paper Twin. Gang Sign. The Netherlands. Team Roach Pierre. Wild Yak. MC Todd and Bo Breezy. Night Show. Yeah, yeah. Sponsored by Martin Greenfield Clothers. Free Fitness Studio. Heritage Radio Network. Free Williamsburg. Six Point Beer. Momo Sushi Shack. Beer Box USA. Planet of the Bates. Bushwick Block Party. It's a party in the street. All day long. It's with great sadness that we mourn the loss of Ray Dieter, owner of the DBA Bars and co-host of Beer Sessions Radio. Ray made this studio brighter every Tuesday at 5 p.m. with his larger-than-life personality, charm, wit, charisma, and expertise. We hope the archives of Ray on our station will serve as some kind of window into the life of a man who meant so much to those he knew and those he didn't know. And on behalf of everybody here at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you, Ray. Um, and they've been doing that for many, many years. And how did I get that, that barrel of beer? Um, did you ever hear of a place called Beer Mountain? Where's I have that? not, actually. Beer Mountain is a place that I climb every once in a while to find barrels of beer um, for my customers. I go up there. I wear big, heavy boots. I carry a sled with me because there's snow and ice. And, uh, <laughs> and I go to the top of the mountain, and I bring back barrels and bottles of beer for the people at my bars. And that's, that's where I got it from, Beer Mountain. You're awesome, Ray. It's better for growing things. There's just more rain and more, more regular temperatures, not as harsh a winter. Sure. So it just became more economically viable to grow it there. Can I just make a statement? I want to apologize to everybody that asked me why hops weren't grown in New York State because I've told everybody there was a hop light. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. So why did you open a bar? in New Orleans? Well, <laughs> everybody asks that question. The basic reason I opened a bar in New Orleans, um, down there, um, the, a, a bit, well, obviously, it's a drinking town. There's a lot of drinking town. It's also a culinary town. They have some of the best restaurants in the country down there, and uh, people told us we were crazy, bringing a good beer, good whiskey, good drinking concept down to New Orleans, because all the people wanted was, you know, huge-ass buds. And that's all well and fine, and, and there's a lot of fun to be had on Bourbon Street, but there's a lot of shit going on down there away from Bourbon Street. And uh, we opened up DBA in 2000, and uh, we had a, a slow beginning because we had a, a pretty good list, and people were like kind of intimidated. But once the restaurant people, the, the, the chefs, the, the service people in the restaurant industry kind of got wind that we were down there, and we had a great beer selection, we... We got filled up pretty fast. I mean, it worked out real well. And we opened our second place called Mimi's down there. And another aspect about it is down there, you know, a bar owner is 
a respected member of the community. We, we pay our taxes, we, we employ people, and we're part of the whole trade industry down there, the whole um, tourist industry. In New York City, we're not treated quite the same, and you know that as well as I speak. We're kind of treated as a... Uh, we're not a respected member of the business community as bar owners, necessarily. So you like New Orleans? I love New Orleans. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. Ray Dieter, a.k.a. Bootsy Collins, was just on the air. Ray, what was it like in the old days? Did you have a band or something? Bootsy Collins, Ray Dieter, DBA. I, I, I play guitar a little bit, but uh, yeah, it was kind of boring. The beer business is a lot more fun, Jimmy. You're just too cool, man. I love you, man. <laughs> Ray, tell us the Tom Peters story. I know you've known him for years. You know, you know, I have known him for years, and all the stories that I have about Tom, I cannot tell you on the radio. How about a general <laughs> beer theme story, like okay, the first you. time you met him? How about that? Okay. The first time I met Tom, he was running a bar in Philadelphia called... Um, Copa 2. Copa 2. Copa 2, right. And uh, he was... I went down there. DBA was... A brand new bar. We went down there, and uh, he was one of the most generous, wonderful guys. He's like, oh, DBA, I love you guys. Like, how did he hear about us? I have no idea. But he knew who we were, and he treated us like kings. And uh, free food, free drinks, so generous. And then I found out that he didn't own the place. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, if anyone's offering a course like that, it's a scam. It's, it's, <laughs> absolutely. I took a course at NYU about opening a bar, and it was just a fallacy. It was just ridiculous. They, they have no idea. Um, they have. It's, it's all about math, too. And, and the math they talk about is really fun, but it's really not pertinent to what you do on a day-to-day living. Um, yeah, we need beer. Can somebody right. open some beer? All right, up? I'm all over this. Give me a minute. Give me a My bottle. My glass is empty. <laughs> this is the first show we haven't been drinking beer nonstop. Right. Hey, Ray, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, you know, my New Year's was fine. Uh, I made a few bad choices, but you're supposed to. Um, that's just what it is. New Year's is about making bad decisions. Um, and I did that. But it, all in all, okay, I, I lived through it. Like I say, we're the only brewery in the world. We have wooden oak casks. Yeah, 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 yeah. When are we going to get some keys? Well, well, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's the reason. I mean, these, these casks, we sell them. We sell them in England. You can't ship these things across the Atlantic Ocean. How about if I we mean, provide the casks? <laughs> even if we provi- we we do provide. The when casks. I say we, I mean by America. Well, I can, um, and by America, I mean Union. <laughs> union <laughs> car- beer. Cask, cask beer done the traditional way, as we do it, has a shelf life of probably about a week after it. Um, after it's brewed Yeah but we after have some casks coming over here I know the Shelton Brothers bring some casks And I know that the United Nether Importer Brings yeah, some that, casks I mean that's fantastic and They're, they're, they're well, fine I'm really glad that you appreciate You know that's that's great for you that you No have pressure cask beer. <laughs> But I mean that's I mean to be, to be brutally honest The way that we do things at Sam Smith Is that we are very, very traditional, and, and mm. that's that's what our what, what we believe our success is based on is sticking to our sticking to what well, we I mean, do but best. But IPA was made to be sent to India, and that's before airplanes and big steamships. I mean, if you really want to be traditional, you can like you know we can get a donkey cart to come around South of Africa or whatever <laughs> on a tramp steamer and bring it over. But I think I think it's time for Samuel yeah. Adam Samuel well, sorry Samuel Smiths <laughs> to be. Available in cask occasionally for special events in in New York. Not, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the beers in England. I mean, uh, most of the breweries, the old old school English ale breweries, would make a barley wine, but it wasn't. They weren't proud of them. It was something that they kept under the shelf, and it was something that like the old guy with yeah. a really greasy red woolly cap in the corner yeah. would get a little glass and it was like he would get a little bottle of it. It was about six ounces, and he poured into his ale. Yeah, because no nobody would sit there and pound 
right. barley wine like we do here in America. Right. Yeah. And that barley wine that he was pouring into it his ale. It was fortification, ale, yeah. Right. His ale yeah. was about 3.5%. It was a yeah. session beer. And the barley wine back in the day was probably about 6%, 6.5%. Right, right. And, and he didn't want to be seen drinking that because... Only old drunks drank barley wine, but that's a whole old, old profile. Little nip, yeah, yeah. And now, so he would do. He would he would dip that little glass into into his into his ale, and he would drink that. He'd sip that and quietly have a nice day. <laughs> Can't wait to be old. <laughs> <laughs>